Perfectly, perfectly. And um, how is Cape Town? I'm presuming the weather is slightly blustery, or is it good? Um, no, it's cold. Yeah, it's um, it's winter, so I've got my little heater um, here and uh, sort of cozy in the corner of a little study. Oh, I miss Cape Town winters. Pete, so good to have you um, on our Ordinary Profits series. Uh, just wanted to, by way of introduction, tell people a little bit about you. You are um, the most Cape Conian Englishman that I know. Um, and no, not many people I know who are English can throw around the kind of um, slang that is native to the Cape Flats the way you can. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I am from Cape Town and uh, was born on the Cape Flats. And um, Pete is working into a phenomenal community called Manningburg uh, in Cape Town, which uh, has been known to be amongst the most violent, uh, gang-ridden, uh, drug-taking, uh, just part of the world, really. It is, it is crazy. But something beautiful is happening in your community, a tree of life and some of the ministers that you're involved in. And uh, I love both you and Sarah. I love what you guys are doing. The thing that sticks out to me about both you and Sarah is not just the high cost that you paid to as people who are white and English to move into a mixed race community that is governed by poverty, brokenness and pain, um, but the joy with which you've done it, the incredible sense of life that it gives you. I had the privilege, Kathleen, I had the privilege of going to go and visit um, Pete and Sarah in Manningburg. I've still got some family who actually live out in Manningburg, so know a little bit about the community. Um, but you guys are just the happiest missionaries and prophetic types that I know. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit about your story, Pete. What takes a London kid, uh, you, it was London, right, that you grew up? I, uh, yeah, yeah. London kid from uh, the niceties of the first world and you get put into a space that for all in, you know, by every world percentage is tricky and hard. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, thanks. Hi everyone, great to be with you, Julian. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, you're right. Someone once said, um, live in such a way that if God didn't exist, your life wouldn't make sense. And um, people's incredulity with our calling is often a great confirmation that God does exist. Um, but yeah, I'm from I'm from London, um, and it was honestly it was a it was a short term mission trip back when I was a student at Edinburgh University uh, that a friend asked me if I wanted to go on, um, and sort of a whole bunch of things conspired to get me on the plane. Not least because I had to get a shoulder operation for a dislocating right shoulder, and phoned the shoulder consultant secretary to ask her to change the date to see if I could go on this mission trip. And she said, well, you can't do that. But I clocked that she had a slightly strange accent to my ear. And, um, and I said, well, I want to go on a Christian mission trip. She goes, oh, actually, I'm a Christian. I said, oh, and she goes, where do you want to go? I said, um, 
South Africa. She goes, I'm from South Africa. Where in South Africa do you want to go? I said, um, Paul, just outside Cape Town. She said, I'm from Paul. And then she goes, I think God might want you to go on this mission trip. Like, what date can I give you to change the date of your shoulder oh, operation? I love it. She did that. You know, I didn't, I didn't actually want to go on this trip. Uh, I was with a bunch of Christian Union types who I thought I was much cooler than. And, <laughs> um, and in the end, God conspired and kind of poked me onto that plane. Um, and for six weeks, me and eight others, you know, in our late teens, early 20s, lived in Bontyville, which is a community like Manenberg. Um, and we were... Uh, 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 we went to visit Drakenstein Prison, where the Numbers Gang, um, you know, operate. It's the prison that Mandela was released from uh, back in 1990. And, um, yeah, we just heard stories of trauma and oppression and gang violence and pain and, 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 you know, and we got broken into and we heard the gunshots. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful to come back and live here? Um <laughs> You know, I, I, I got mugged by a bunch of guys with um, knives um, whose eyes were popping out of their heads when we were on a, I don't even know where we were going, just walking along the street. And I remember thinking, oh, man, like, these were 15-year-olds off their face on drugs. And I just remember thinking, like, of course, like, why wouldn't they mug me? Like, I would mug me if I was them. And, yeah. like, but wouldn't it be amazing to come back and buy a home in this township or somewhere like this? and invite guys like that to come and live with me um, and welcome them into a redemptive brotherhood rather than, you know, this one that steals and kills and destroys. Um, so graduated from university and was working uh, for Children's BBC in London for a bit, sort of, um, you know, assembling giant pogo sticks and working out how to gunge parents on live studio shows, that sort of thing, uh, which was fun. But I think, you know, latent in me was this desire to go and make a difference in a place that I had uh, really received God's deposit of love for. So 2009, 23 years old, came back to Cape Town. I've been here ever since. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. You and Sarah are doing an amazing work do you want to just give a little bit of insight in terms of what it looks like for you guys to be, you know, we've had lots of conversation around the gospel is never meant to be a theory, it's meant to be incarnational. We've chatted around racial dynamics and the intensity that is um, literally central on the world stage right now with Black right. Lives Matter and how we engage in some of these things. Um, but the thing I love about you guys is your kingdom perspective on how you're doing that. Tell us a little bit about exactly what you guys are working out in terms of your thinking and in terms of where you feel prophetically God's putting emphasis on uh, with this current season of wokeness, with this current season of Black Lives Matter, which, which incidentally is always fascinating because it's a great access point for the West, but we're not even touching the rest of the world. Um, and so I just love some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, so the first thing to say is that Sarah and I live in Manenberg, um, and Manenberg's a community that shouldn't exist because it's founded on white supremacy. You know, uh, in the 60s and 70s, the apartheid government uh, uh, forcibly removed and bulldozed the homes of people of colour from the foot of Table Mountain to places like Manenberg. Yeah. So Manenberg shouldn't exist. You know, that, that Manenberg exists um, is, is b because of white supremacy. 
So first of all, it is because of structural racism. Um, so the first thing to say is those who, those who um, reject the notion of structural racism and historic racism, please come and visit us and let me show you the rotten legacy of white supremacy yeah. lived that day. And, and so we're, and we're part of um, leading a uh, church community called Tree of Life. Tree of Life's part of 24-7 prayer, global prayer sort of movement. And we uh, have been living with guys coming out of gangs and drugs. Tree of Life also runs a home for at-risk teenage girls and a ministry to addicted mothers and their preschool children. And on Sunday, we, we, we gather uh, and we have a fairly chaotic service of sorts where, you know, those uh, coming out of addiction, those who are celebrating sobriety milestones, where those who are still high a lot of the time come, uh, where some, you know, people from Islamic backgrounds and others who have relapsed uh, in their faith uh, and some Christians around there as well. We all gather together and we do a bit of church on Sunday. But really, the, the main vision is putting at the center of our church community those who are marginalized in Manenberg. That is the addicted uh, and the um, violent, the, um, the, the poor and the abused and putting them at the center of covenant community, not to necessarily even offer solutions, mm. rather as a prophetic, a collective prophetic sign to Cape Town of what can happen when love is put at the center and when fear doesn't rule our lives. Um, but, so that's what we're trying to do. And obviously along the way, you've got to answer questions around how do you get somebody off heroin? You've got to ask questions around what does sustainable work look like for somebody who's been earning a thousand rand a day dealing crystal meth? And what does character formation look like uh, amidst the most traumatized community? Uh, as I say, still living out daily the effects of historic structural racism. So yeah. these are some things that we, we love chewing over. And the only way to do it, honestly, is joyfully, because otherwise it does get to you. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. Gosh, I, I just love what you said about love at the same time, not allowing fear to rule, because um, I know what it's like to live in a context where fear governs because of violence, because of rejection, because of all of the stuff that we see um, expressing systemic racism and in, in violent communities. I'd love some of your insight in terms of what it means. One of the things I feel like God is putting on the church is an ability to get into the mess, get into the pain, and not necessarily have the faith-filled, word-of-faith victory answers, but just to get right into the mess. Like, actually, that's what it means to be a prophet. And then to help engage, you know, to quote Walter Brueggemann, to help them think, what does it look like if God actually showed up? What is, what is unlocking an imagination to dream for something different? Um, and you guys are so pioneering some of this. Just give me some of your random thoughts around what it means to get into pain, what it means to get into a space, holding space in love for highly traumatized people. I don't know why, but I, you're just making me want to cry. I just, I'm just so full of joy having this conversation. It's, um, it's exactly what we spend our entire life 
throwing around the ideas of. Okay, so here's the thing. When you've been praying for someone over the last 10 years to get off heroin and they have received the gift of tongues and they have come off heroin miraculously two or three times and yet they are currently living on the streets uh, in between the streets and Paulsmore prison. What does it mean to say to someone, your breakthrough's on the way, just make more positive declarations, get into scripture more. Like we, we've got to, you know, it's that whole thing of when somebody, <laughs> I can't remember, was it Oscar Romero who said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor are hungry, they call me a communist. Mm. And we've got, we've got to ask, what are the drivers in these, in these systems that are enabling someone um, to be, you know, at the bottom of the pile continually. And one of the things that we're learning is the personal prophetic and the systemic prophetic having to team up. I was chatting to a friend of ours, Dave, about this the other day. And, um, and, and we were talking about, wouldn't it be amazing to gather people working in, you know, what I'm calling the seven valleys of society. People talk about the seven mountains mandate. Rubbish. I, 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 honestly, I just think... <laughs> Go there, Kelly. <laughs> huh? Let me go there. So go there. The seven mountains mandate. Isaiah 40 tells us that when the, preparing the coming of the Lord, every mountain will be made low and every valley will be raised up. So yeah. what if the most prophetic mandate of the church is not a seven mountains theology, but it's a seven valleys theology where we are, um, where we are going into the valleys of society, the refugee camps, the homeless, the psychiatric wards, the drug dens, the informal settlements. You know, what if, what if we are going to these places and loving the hell out of them? Come on. Alan Scott, the um, pastor at um, Anaheim Vineyard, talks about every city has a shadow story, but it also has a prophetic promise. The shadow story masquerades as normal, but the prophetic promise is inscribed. It's, it's marked by a divine inscription. Mm. And for me, my frustration in Cape Town is that too many people are falling for the for the shadow story masquerading as normal and you know am i to believe that god has called half of white christian cape town to canada and australia well maybe maybe not but if we're leaving somewhere because of the shadow story because we don't have faith for the prophetic promise then we need to realign our theology and raise our faith because the fact is the personal the personal prophetic has to fuel the systemic prophetic. Otherwise, we end up with angry activists and we call complaining about, quote, systems that don't work prophetic. Complaining is not prophetic, right? Infiltrating those systems that don't work with something better, aka kingdom vision, that works. And that's got to be fueled by the prophetic, uh, the, the, the personal prophetic, which is words of destiny, words of DNA, big, hairy, scary words that are impossible to fulfill without the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit. One of the things I, I love about you and Sarah Pete is uh, you guys are not immune to pain and you have had to face incredible pain, not just in terms of what you're doing in Manenberg with some of your dear friends who walk along road with you and then uh, falter along the way, but even in your own lives and you've somehow managed to hold pain and prophetic promise together. Mm. Uh, is something you might want to just tell us a little bit in terms of what that looks like for you guys to hold pain and prophetic promise together? <sighs> Golly. Yeah, hitting all the big ones, right? <laughs> it, 
if it's in the valley of the shadow of death that we encounter God, as Psalm 22, 23 tells us, right? Then that means that there is an aspect of the revelation of the person of God that is reserved for the valley of the shadow of death somehow. So that when we're in that place, we're able to say he prepares a table for before me in the presence of my enemies, in the presence of grief, in the presence of disappointment, in the presence of betrayal. There I am feasting with the Lord. Um, my cup overflows. There's something, there's something reserved. If, if Jesus suffered and left us a, an example to follow, as 1 Peter tells us, then it should be a joy for us to embrace, not in some flagellistic kind of um, self-harm way, but we, um, we lean into the suffering that we're told will happen to us um, because in that and through that is a revelation of the goodness and the person of God so that we can say, like the psalmist at the end of Psalm 23, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And the fact of the matter is, if you were to find any Christian, any follower of Jesus who's been following Jesus for more than a few months and who's been through some really hectic stuff, then it's, it's, uh, we've got two options. One is we get bitter, resentful, cyn cynical and pissed off. And the other one is that we actually allow this to, uh, uh, to kind of hollow out anything that is sub-kingdom, anything that isn't Jesus in us, in order to conform us to the likeness of his son, right? And that's Romans 8, 28, where all things work for our good, dot, 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 to conform us into the image of his son. Yeah. Well, if, yeah. if for Jesus, he had, Jackie Pullinger says, if, if the gospel brought death to Jesus in sharing the message with humanity. Why on earth do we think it would be different for us? The message of the gospel is this. It's death to the giver and it's life to the receiver. Come on. We've got to embrace that. Otherwise, it just turns into positive declarations, a middle class knees up in a suburb somewhere. And actually, the world is crying out for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed through the embracing of the character of God that comes only, I believe, through the valley of the shadow of death. I feel like you are just prophesying to our generation right now. <laughs> how you're communicating. Honestly, I feel like we have so missed the point of the gospel. I'm, I'm with N.K. Wright and Derek Morphew and Craig King and numbers of others who've said we have misread the gospels. And we've right. come a post-Reformation um, white European Jesus that is void of power, who carries a wonderful sense of hippiness that actually is not making any change. Um, it's got to be more than the kingdom is subversive. It yeah. is beautiful. It is transformative. And it is power for the most darkest places and for those people who are living in, the, in, in a space of darkness. And so I just love what you're saying. Totally. If you look at Philippians 3 verse 10, it talks about sharing, participating in the sufferings of Jesus, that we might also share in the power of his resurrection. Boom, right? yeah. so, so if we want the power of resurrection power, what's the root? It's sharing in the fellowship, participating in the sufferings of Jesus. It's my contention, my conviction that the church doesn't see enough participatory suffering. Therefore, we don't see enough supernatural power. 
Both of those things go together. And we're happy with a five out of 10 in the middle. There's no- Oh my God, you're just dropping the firebombs here. This is ridiculous. I'm either lose friends or this, this Instagram uh, story is going to go all over the place. Yeah, let's break Instagram. God, I, I'm so tired of a populist social mimicking sounding gospel that is all about the likes, that is all about getting more quote-unquote influence as if Jesus ever needed platform to influence. Right. And the prophetic movement, which is really why I've been doing this Ordinary Prophets, has focused on the celebrity status and nature of prophetic ministry, the ability to foretell the future rather than the ability to incarnate the future, the ability to, um, you know, give greater words of knowledge and be more um, kinkly and wild by the prophetic rather yeah. than helping the world reimagine what life is like with God. Um, and so what you're saying is just so powerful because we have to end us preaching on Sunday. Somewhere along the line, the gospel is going to hit up even against the most woke. It's going to hit up even against the, the biggest activists. It's going to hit up against the biggest racists. It's going to hit up against the biggest communists because the kingdom is completely other than anything we've seen. Um, and I just love what you guys are carrying. Now, you've written a book um, called No Neutral Ground. Tell the people about it in terms of just some of the story. I, I've read it. I, it is just incredible. I love it. Well, you endorsed it kindly. That's very good of you. <laughs> I, I, I try. I'd love you maybe just to give a little highlight or something, a story just out of that that will um, make people right now go and click on Amazon and wherever you sell your book to buy it. So, so No Neutral Ground, um, to sound pretentious about it, it's a memoir. That's apparently the genre. It's a memoir. Uh, but it's... Um, you sound it, very... It's, it's, the, it's the story, basically, of how I moved from uh, London to Manenberg. And a lot of the triumph and tragedy that uh, we have encountered, but how Jesus has used those, um, the, the preferably unheard, uh, to change me. But rather than being one of those um, kind of, dare I say it, slightly cringe, white written stories of like African history or something like that, actually it's a theological reflection on what, a revival in this place, in this world can look like as we orientate our lives to those that the uh, mainstream has thrown out or silenced or deliberately unheard. And so it's looking at, for example, things like Azusa Street, you know, uh, which was one of the most, let's be honest, to use some um, swear words in certain, not actual swear words, in certain parts of the church, Azusa Street was one of the most politically progressive revivals ever where you've got women empowered into leadership, where you've got whites and blacks, Latinos, and every ethnicity and culture coming together. Um, and, and actually that was shut down also by white supremacy. So it's looking at what, what would a revival in this time, in this place, with those of us reading it now, combining the physical healing of bodies and limbs with the emotional and historic healing of memories, combining personal prophetic words of destiny with systemic uh, 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 disruptive uh, policy changes that are as prophetic as any uh, personal prophetic word. It's trying to combine two things, activism and revivalism together. We've created a dichotomy, which is sub-kingdom, 
and No Neutral Ground tries to paint a picture of what the kingdom coming could look like with reference to life lived amongst the poor, forgotten, addicted, and violent. I, I think one of the reasons why I love your book is because it tells some of my story as a person of color, having grown up in Cape Town, right. having grandparents, my mom and dad forcibly removed. Um, and uh, it has produced such a high level of expectation that God can do it again, like he did at Azusa Street. And I'm praying that this next generation of millennials, Gen Zers and Alpha generation will be able to carry something in the most powerful way. Um, one of the things that I, I, I have commented a number of times is that Azusa got shut down because of issues to do with race, economic yeah. disparity, and issues yeah. of gender equality in the ministry. Um, right. Just like the three things that God has highlighted in this last season are those very things in terms of how we deal with race, how we deal with economic disparity and uh, inequity, as well as uh, the role of women fully alongside men, fully equal. Um, it's like God's not changing his mind on that. He's like, last revival, greatest revival that we saw on the earth, you shut it down because of this. So I'm just going to go right back there with a whole new generation. What are some of the words you want yeah. to give in Gen Z who are growing in the prophetic, who have a sense of call to the supernatural ministry that Jesus did, um, as well as the sense of mercy, justice, and activism? Anything you want to say to us? Well, I'm not a millennial or a Gen Z, but to the people listening. Do you not, do you not just about squeeze into millennial uh, brackets, Julian? Or are you... No, I'm too old. You don't make it. No, <laughs> I don't make it at all. Um, what 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 I would say is that um, oh, there's so much I'd say, but that the system that we currently have that is exacerbating all of those things you say around uh, 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 the race stuff and around uh, uh, socioeconomic inequality what i would say to the younger generations is that it doesn't have to be like that another world is possible but we need the church to step up rather than catch up if 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 all of what we're talking about at azusa happened back when it was 115 years ago and yet still we're debating these things we we can be that change we can actually the, the the also the thing i'd say is that the best critique of something that doesn't work is an exemplar of something that does get creating get starting get off instagram dare i say it on instagram and go into real life places and real life people i once heard um, somebody say stop worrying about the issues choose people when you choose people the issues choose themselves so get proximate get up close with people that the system has thrown out for whatever reason get up and close get to know their smells their accents their names and their um idiosyncrasies and quirks and um allow friendship to change you as you allow jesus in you to change others um i think that's what i'd say it's 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 proximity to pain that we have we have to uh, go after. That, that's just incredible. It's so beautiful. Pete, what, when I say the word ordinary prophets, what do you think that means uh, in this day and age? Well, I think, I think ordinary prophets in a way is a, is a, a, a tautology because I think 
you know, the prophetics by definition, prophets by definition are ordinary. I think the moment someone's an uh, extraordinary because they're a prophet, we've got a problem. Um, <laughs> Come on. I, you know, and, and that's the whole critique of the platform ministry stuff, uh, which we've spoken about before and hopefully people have rejected by now. Um, but ordin yeah, ordinary prophets for me, um, it, it, it speaks about, um, you know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, you know, laws aren't going to change. Laws aren't going to uh, make you love me, but laws can stop you killing me. Right. Or at least make it harder for you to kill me. I think ordinary prophets. And I'm not talking about a seven mountains mandate here. I'm just talking about ordinary prophets in quote unquote ordinary vocations, um, just doing ordinary things, but with the absolute searing love of Jesus wherever they are. Um, I don't think it's a, a, a time to for everybody to become full time, you know, Christian Christian workers or whatever. I do think it's it's just normal people being extraordinary in the amount of love they show in small things. I think that's key. I think ordinary prophets will think um, very carefully about allegiance to various uh, political and economic systems. I think ordinary prophets will give that word of destiny to the uh, person at the cashier at the supermarket. I think ordinary prophets, marriages and relationships will be extraordinary and their home life will be congruent with whatever goes on uh, outside of home. I think these are just the ordinary things. Which I don't think the world is looking for more anointed, flashy Christians. I think it's looking for more Christians with a congruent life between what I say and how I live so that the story I tell about my life isn't better than the one you see. I think that's an ordinary prophet and that will be prophetic just by virtue of the fact that so much of us uh, in church can be so hypocritical. Seriously, Pete, this is just incredible. I love how you are communicating the heart of God. I feel super stirred. My heart is burning um, as you're speaking. I know that the internet's going a little bit funny. I do want to encourage you uh, guys, please head over to Tree of Life. Um, I'm sure there is a giving link somewhere, Pete, if you um, want to please drop details in terms of where people can give into what you're doing. Um, I want to encourage you what this man carries is incredible. What his wife carries is incredible. And what the community that they're part of is doing is making a very um, dark place even more beautiful. Um, and I love that. It's not dark anymore because they showed up. Pete, where's the best place that people can give? Uh, on treeoflife.org.za. That's treeoflife.org.za. Please, guys, I know I've got a platform. Yeah. Um, which is wonderful. Um, I'd love you to give a whole load of money to what these guys are doing. This is not just about good soil. This is about how these people are living out the gospel. Pete, thank you so much. You have literally set my heart on fire. I feel like I might need to come back to South Africa very soon just to see you guys Absolutely. again. Yeah, get, the, get over